Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Well, thank you all. It is good to see everybody. Am I on? You guys can all hear me, right? Okay. Well, I am sad to say that I believe this is going to be the final week in our biblical ethics series. So I've, uh, I've enjoyed teaching through it. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. And uh, even just being, the, the, being a part of the group discussions on Sundays have been a lot of fun as well. Um, but last week we did begin our final topic in this series, and that was the topic of racial justice. And we introduced the concept of racism. We talked about the sin of partiality, which we explored more this past Sunday as being the main sin behind racism. And then we also introduced the modern racial justice movement that is spreading throughout the, the culture. And we looked at their definition of racism and even their ultimate goal as a movement. Well, tonight we are going to finish this topic of racial justice and what we are going to look at this evening are two foundational and we could say destructive teachings from the racial justice movement. We're going to look at these two teachings and then compare them to scripture like we usually do. Now, these two teachings are not the only teachings of this movement. I mean, you, we could spend a whole series just on racial justice, but these are foundational to the movement. And as we're going to see, they directly contradict the teaching of God's word and the gospel itself. So it's, it's vital and important that we, we study these topics. And the first of these foundational teachings is that systemic racism causes unequal racial outcomes. So let's break this down, starting with unequal racial outcomes. And if you recall from last week, unequal racial outcomes is essentially what they mean by that is unequal outcomes in areas like education, health, wealth, and also just general prosperity in life. That's what they mean by that. And the following are some statistics, and these are factual statistics, of the unequal outcomes between specifically blacks and whites, right? That's often the two groups that are, are pitted against each other or compared to each other in this, in this movement. And so here are some statistics. Uh, one, the typical white family has eight times the wealth of the typical black family. Two, based on some data taken on 23 and 24-year-olds in between 2011 and 2013, whites obtained bachelor degrees at a rate of roughly or a little over two times the amount of blacks within the same age group and in the same time frame. Also, blacks are far more likely to attend lower-ranked colleges or, or you know, lesser-ranked uh, lesser colleges. Also, and here's another one, unemployment rates among black Americans is almost twice as high as white Americans. And we could just keep going down the list of different outcomes between these racial groups. But when the modern 
racial justice movement looks at these statistics, and these are factual statistics, all things being considered, the, the difference between, we could say, them and what we're going to see is the biblical understanding of differences like this. What the modern racial justice movement says is that all of these unequal outcomes, all of these statistics are the result and are caused by systemic racism throughout the culture. That's what they, that is what they claim. A few quotes to demonstrate this. One, I have one from that was published on USA Today on their website. And it was, a, it was an article about this systemic racism. And it says this, civil rights leaders and advocates are demanding an end systemic, to, to systemic racism. A reference to the systems in place that create and maintain racial inequality in nearly every facet of life for people of color. A second quote is from a website called American Progress. And it says this, it says, for centuries, structural racism in the U.S. housing system has contributed to stark and persistent racial disparities in wealth and financial well-being, especially between black and white households. So here, this is talking about the housing system specifically, but these two quotes are just a snapshot and an example of what you will hear from this movement. And also reporters, professors, anyone who subscribes and promotes this movement as well. This is just a snapshot. And to kind of understand where they're coming from, if you recall our teaching on, on communist theory, we did two parts in that as well, I taught that Communist philosophers view the world as a world that operates on the principle of survival of the fittest, right? Dog eat dog, and they view the world as you have the strong and the powerful who oppress the the weak and the powerless. Well, the proponents of the modern racial justice movement, they view the world in largely the same terms with one difference. And that is this, that instead of thinking of the world in terms of economic groups or, you know, or like the, the, you know, owners of business versus the workers of business, for example, the modern racial justice movement replaces economic classes with racial classes. But otherwise, they largely see the world in, in the same way. And so to kind of summarize this, the advocates of the modern social justice movement they believe that the racial power group in a particular area, so in the United States, that would be, in their eyes, the whites, because we are, as white people, the racial majority in this country. And so they would, they would claim that, that those of us who are white, we are part of this racial power group, and that the racial, this white power group has essentially created or benefited from social structures that oppress and disadvantage black Americans or other racial minorities. That is what they would claim, that the whites are the powerful, the minorities are the oppressed, and the whites are creating and, and promoting systems that keep that oppression and benefit in place for them. 
Now, often this movement will cite the era of slavery and Jim Crow as the primary examples. Now, slavery is no longer a thing. Jim Crow is no longer a thing. But they will say that the effects of these things continue to this day and that the oppression that originated from those eras continue to this day. That is what their argument would be. Now, as we kind of respond to this, there are two responses. We can, have, we can take a historical response and an economic response. Thomas Sowell, he's in his 90s now. He was born in North Carolina under Jim, Jim Crow uh, laws. And eventually, through hard work and the Lord's kindness to him, um, ended up going to Harvard, getting his PhD in economics, and he has taught at Ivy League institutions. Uh, he says that he used to be a communist and a Marxist thinker, but then, uh, as he says, facts changed his mind. And, uh, and through his research and his work with the government, um, he is now a strong promoter of capitalistic thinking, and he has written extensively on the topic of civil rights and race relations. He, is, he has several amazing books on that topic. And in his writings, he has pointed out cases where minority racial groups and institutions have prospered even while under legalized discrimination. So here's some examples. Um, he points out that there's the, the West Indian immigrants, and by West Indian, I'm talking about the Caribbeans, so Caribbean islands. And they are just as black as black Americans. And they, like black Americans, come from a history of slavery. And yet, when... West Indian immigrants come to America, and they've been here you know, for a while, like other immigrants, what the data shows is that they have been, on average, more economically successful than black Americans. Even though they look the same, they have a history of slavery, they perform better economically. Even outside the United States, he looks at Chinese immigrants to Southeast Asia, so it's countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia. And Chinese immigrants in those, in those nations have been discriminated against for, for many years. Um, and they had Jim Crow-like laws in those countries as well against the Chinese immigrants. And yet, the Chinese immigrants in those countries, on average, became more successful in business than the native people of those countries. Now, what these examples show... And the point of listing these examples is they undermine the claim that external forms of oppression are the main cause or only cause of all or most unequal outcomes between racial groups. And if you're interested in exploring more of this, I would highly recommend picking up a book or two from Thomas Sowell and exploring that for yourself. But this is a gives us maybe a small taste of how we can address this first foundational teaching of the racial justice movement from a historical perspective. But now let's turn to a biblical response. And if we first look at external forms of oppression, we can say this, that when you, we look at Scripture on this topic, there is only one kind of oppression that is listed as a legitimate cause of poverty and unequal outcomes between different groups. 
And what that is, is the literal plundering of wealth and life. In other words, if a governing authority or a powerful institution literally steals from people, either through force or through unjust legal proceedings and processes, then, okay, yes, that, that kind of oppression does legitimately create poverty and a difference in, in outcomes. That, that, is, that is true. Um, here's an example in Isaiah 3, verses 13 to 15. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. But Isaiah 3, 13 to 15, it says, The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people, saying, It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of hosts. So here's an example. And, and one of the best examples of this plundering, and we won't look there, but in 1 Kings 21, you have a, a story about King Ahab and Jezebel and their plundering of Naboth's vineyard. Naboth was a man that lived in the Jezreel Valley. And King Ahab, he saw his vineyard and he wanted it. He coveted the vineyard. And he offered Naboth a bunch of money or another piece of land. But, but Naboth, he refused to sell. He, he wasn't going to sell the inheritance of his fathers. And so Queen Jezebel, the, the wicked Queen Jezebel, comes up with this whole scheme to basically murder Naboth and then steal the vineyard. And that is just one example in 1 Kings 21 of this kind of oppression. Now, in the absence of oppression where wealth is literally being stolen, we could ask the question, what does the Bible then teach about the cause of poverty or disadvantage in life? And, and this is relevant for us because when we look at the culture today, the reality is that slavery has been abolished it, it, you know, at least the, the slavery, I mean, people might say, well, no, there's still slavery, you know, like human trafficking and so forth. Okay, I, I grant that. But in terms of the African slave trade and sl colonial slavery of America, that is gone. And then we don't see among any racial group government, government authorities in mass stealing the property or the wealth from different groups of people. We just don't see that. So this question, well, then what does the Bible say about the cause of poverty is relevant for our day? And this is going to be a little bit of a review for those that recall our previous lessons on economics and, and communist theory. But we can say first at the highest level, here's the first cause, it's ultimately God, right? It's God is the, is the ultimate sovereign cause of wealth and poverty. One verse that's an example, 1 Samuel 2, verse 7. And it just says it simply, the Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. And there's many other passages that we could, that we could reference as well. So that's the highest level, that God is ultimately sovereign over this. But under God's sovereign determination of life outcomes, if we were to look at some of, of the things on a human level that produce poverty, 
the Bible makes it clear that sin is the main cause of poverty. Outside of the oppression that we've talked about and God's sovereign determination, sin on a human level is the main cause of poverty. And what do I mean by that? Okay, well, first, on a national level, and we've talked about this before, sin can result in God's judgment that often brings poverty with it. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 to 48, in this he's speaking to his own people, Israel. He says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. So this is an example of national level sin that results in God's judgment upon the nation that brings with it conditions that create poverty. Okay, so that's one example of sin causing poverty. Now, on an individual level, there are also sins that cause poverty at an individual and a family level. Here are some examples of that. So one, a lack of self-control with money, such as impulsive buying or not saving. All right? Impulsive buying, impulsive spending can lead to poverty. Here's one example in Proverbs, Proverbs 21, verse 5. And, and here it says, Proverbs 21, verse 5, The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Which means if you're a hasty, foolish person that operates on emotion, there's a very good chance that you will put yourself into poverty as a result of that. So that's one example. A second example is divorce. The sin of divorce doesn't mean that everyone is equally guilty of the sin of divorce that's involved in divorce, but we can say that divorce in general is sin. And what's really interesting about this is, for example, one study that I found showed, and this is almost crazy to think about, but divorce, this study, it was like a study of 9,000 people, reduces a person's wealth by as much as 77%. 77%. And of course, you think about that, just attorney fees, you know, splitting of incomes, all, all this stuff, right? I mean, you could just go down the list, but 77%. And the same study showed that being married actually increases your wealth by 93%. So it has the opposite effect and even a little bit more. So if you're married there's a good chance you're going to be maybe twice as wealthy as you were before you were married. If you're divorced, you may be close to twice as poor as you were while you were married. So that's just some statistical uh, evidence showing that. Uh, Closely related to this is, uh, and here's a third example, out-of-wedlock childbirth has been commonly identified as one of the leading causes of poverty, especially among single mothers. And, and we could go through many reasons why, but of course it should be maybe speak for itself that if you have a child as a single mom, uh, that is really going to limit 
what economic opportunities you have. You're not going to be able to go to school at certain institutions. You're not going to be able to do certain internships or jobs because of the pressing needs that comes with single parenthood. A fourth example is criminal incarceration. Not only do you not make money when you're in prison, but if you have a criminal record, that is going to affect the job opportunities that you have available. Also, uh, absent fathers. I was looking at some data from the U.S. Census Bureau that showed, this is like from like, I, think, I believe 2003, that children, in, or around 2003, children in father-absent homes are five times more likely to be poor. That's from the U.S. Census Bureau. So absent fathers is another factor. And there's probably many other examples that we could list, but here's the bottom line and the harsh reality. When you look at the different racial groups in America, the minority groups in America, with the exception of the Asians, the Asians actually surpass the whites in many categories. With that one exception, though, the other minority groups have much higher rates of the sin problems that we just went through. Absent fathers, children out of wedlock. And that's not to say that it's not becoming worse for whites. It is becoming worse for whites as well. And as some of these sin patterns are increasing among white populations, the same negative outcomes are showing up as well. But this is the reality, right? Sin. Sinful patterns that just contribute to more sinful patterns that ultimately contribute to poverty and a disadvantaged position in life. And here's when we think about this, one of the biggest problems and falsehoods of the modern racial justice movement is that they want to blame the disadvantage of minority groups on everything except the patterns of sin within those communities. It's everybody else's fault. It's the white man's fault. It's this institution, this structural problem. Everything except sin within the lives of individuals and families within these groups. And, and here's the thing with this. In promoting this victim worldview, so to speak, we can call it this victim mentality, they are essentially denying the biblical teaching of original sin and its effects. And what do I mean by original sin? Well, it's the idea that everyone is born with a sinful nature, that everyone has the potential to sin in the worst ways. It doesn't mean that everyone does sin in the worst ways, but we all have the potential, given the right circumstances and, quite frankly, God not restraining us. And then also, original sin in Scripture and the wisdom that comes from that would say that some communities have higher rates of sinful expression than others. It's a reality. But by denying or ignoring the reality of original sin and these sinful patterns within minority communities, the racial justice movement is, and this is a huge issue, they are hiding the greatest source of change for those suffering the consequences of these sinful patterns. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, repentance before God. Repentance before God and faith in God is the biggest source of change 
that anybody can experience. And, and for example, remember Ahab and Jezebel, we just talked about their example. Well, as a result of that sin, God sent Elijah the prophet to Ahab and proclaimed to Ahab, I'm going to destroy your entire household. Everyone in your household is going to die. If they die in the city, the dogs are going to eat them. If they die in the field, the birds are going to eat them. Your household is toast. Well, what's interesting is that as a result of Elijah's prophecy to him, Ahab actually, in that instance, showed repentance. He, it says that he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, he, he covered himself in ash, he fasted, all the hallmark signs of, of repentance and mourning in the biblical ancient world. He did this at least in this instance, and as a result of even this one instance of repentance, God told Elijah, I'm not going to do this destruction in his lifetime. I'll do it in the lifetime of his sons who are going to turn out to be just as wicked as him. But he did delay that judgment as a result of Ahab's repentance. And so repentance is just one example of many, but repentance and the change that comes through repentance and faith is the greatest source of change. In the modern racial justice movement, they block this, they hide this from the people that need it most. So that is the first and one of the main teachings of the racial justice movement. In our last seven or eight minutes, I want to talk about a second major teaching of the modern racial justice movement. And we could summarize it as this, white guilt. White guilt is the terminology you may hear. And to understand this, we could say this, that not only does the racial justice movement ignore the sinful patterns of minority communities, but they attribute the guilt for systemic racism upon white people. As an example of this, there was one article that was published around the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King, I believe his assassination. Um, believe it or not, this article was on a very popular Christian blog called the Gospel Coalition. And it was written by a guy named Tabiti Anwabili, is his, the name he goes by. I think originally his name was Ron Burns, um, but he changed, he changed his name to this. And he wrote an article and claimed in this article that white culture and its systemic racism contributed to the eventual assassination of Martin Luther King. And there's one quote I want to read you guys from this article that kind of gives you just one example of this. He says this, My white neighbors and Christian brethren can start by at least saying their parents and grandparents in this country are complicit in murdering a man who only preached love and justice. So this is a, an example of, of what this movement will teach. That it doesn't matter if you as a white person never individually committed an act of racism or prejudice. That doesn't matter. If you are white, you are still part of the system. And they will teach that if you ignore, even if you haven't committed an act of racism yourself, they will teach that if you ignore this issue, if you ignore systemic racism 
or you fail to do something about it, then you're guilty. That if you, if you, if you refuse to join their movement and be what they would call an anti-racist, when we saw that last week, then you are racist. Even if you're not actually racist, if you don't fight racism, you're still a racist. That is what they will teach. And they will also teach that you should, as a part of this system of racism, that you should repent for the sins of your ancestors who may or may not have been responsible for racial oppression themselves. And in their eyes, it doesn't matter if your ancestors came from Europe in 1950 and you know, were never a part of anything. Because you're white, you're a part of the, you're a part of the system. And so you need to, in their eyes, repent. And not just repent, but also work to make things right. And often what they'll say is that's through financial reparations or financial gifts, kind of like, um, you know, like, you know, fundraising, whatever, uh, or the giving up of power. That if you have power, well, you should give it to a person of color or a minority. That's what, that's what they will say. Now, so much could be said about this teaching. And, uh, and believe me, but we're short on time. So let me just summarize one point clearly and then show you a biblical example. Okay, so here's one point that responds and answers this second teaching of white guilt from the racial justice movement. And that is this. According to Scripture, it is true that you may suffer the consequences of your ancestors' sins. And of course, the biggest example of this are the consequences that come from Adam's sin, the first man. As a result of his sin, we've inherited the sin nature, which causes us to sin. Okay, So that is a consequence of an ancestor's sin. And all of our ancestors, even black and white, all of us go back to Adam. However, as Scripture is clear about this, you are only guilty before God for the sins that you commit as an individual. You are only guilty before God for your own individual sins. And as an example, and I will have you turn here, turn to Ezekiel 18, and we're going to start in verse 19. But this is a critical passage that addresses this. Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 19. God says, Yet you say, and he's speaking to Israel. Really, he's actually speaking to people that would be aligned with this racial justice movement in some ways. And he says, Why should, or he's saying, that Yet you say, Why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? And then God says, when the son has practiced justice and righteousness and observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from, turns from all of his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions, which he has committed, 
will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. And then going down to verse 30, God continues, he says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. So here, Scripture makes it clear that everyone will be held accountable for their own sin. Not the sin of their fathers, not the sin of their sons, but their own sin. However, if you repent, meaning you turn away and you forsake your sins, and you put on a righteous life, ultimately that comes through faith in the Spirit of God, and you live in the Spirit of God, in the righteousness that comes from that, then you will live. You'll receive eternal life. You'll receive forgiveness of sins. And what you need to know about this, or how you need to apply this, is this, that if you have repented of your sins, and if you have found forgiveness with God, and live righteously through the Spirit of God, then nobody, and this is important for you to know, nobody can claim that you are guilty. No one has the right to claim that, and nobody has the right to place any demands upon you to make right for sins that you didn't commit yourself just because of your skin color or your social group. Remember we read at the beginning today from 1 Corinthians 2 that the spiritual man appraises all things, but he is appraised by no one. Romans 8 says that those, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. No human being has the right to judge a true born-again Christian who is forgiven by God or claim that you are guilty. What God claims is final, and if he has claimed that you are now innocent because of your faith and repentance, then you are innocent and you will be forever. So as we conclude, as I said, this isn't every, we didn't cover every facet of this topic. Believe me, we could spend a whole series on this and we will explore a little bit more this upcoming Sunday. But I do hope that this topic and what we did cover and really our entire series on biblical ethics has been helpful to you as you grow in your understanding of God and this world. And let me close by reading a passage that really could serve as our theme verse for this series, and I would even say for the youth group in general. And that's going to be in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, and we'll close with this. God says through Paul, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable 
and perfect. And let us pray for God to apply that truth in our life. Lord God, thank you so much for this evening and just these past several months that we've been able to explore these ethical topics through the lens of your word, Lord, and your scripture. Um, We are just so thankful for the wisdom that you give us through your word. And Lord, we just pray that you would transform our mind and that you would help us discern truth from falsehood, good from evil, Lord, and that we would be able to apply it in our lives. Lord, I pray for all of these students that you would just continue to bless them and be with them, give them health and general prosperity in life, Lord, that they would be able to live successfully for you and for your honor and glory. I pray for everyone here, including the adults, the same things. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.